And here we are with another supplemental episode, episode 1.2 of Kate Chopin's The Story of an Hour, a quick discussion on irony. There really is no way we can talk about literature without talking about irony. Irony propels so much of what we read, what we understand, how we think. I want to give us a quick overview of some types of irony that are out there, but focus on one which is going to underlie almost all the literature we read. It's not because I'm choosing literature that is particularly ironic or not ironic. It's because all this literature is ironic. We use irony as a way to complicate a situation, to show shades of meaning, to reveal some of the complexity of the world. And most all of this comes with what Thomas C. Foster describes as a deflection from expectation. That's as good an opening definition of irony as any. A deflection from expectation. We expect one thing, but somehow the story, the characters, the words, they take us somewhere else. Notice how this definition is similar but also different from the original Greek concept of irony, uh, from the original Greek ironia, meaning a withholding of knowledge. It is in that case that we, as readers, understand something or have an expectation for something, but we're given something different, maybe something less than or something other than what we expected. Many of us are familiar with the kind of irony we experience daily in the form of verbal irony. This can take on the form of sarcasm, but can also be understatement, where you say less than what you mean, or overstatement, where you exaggerate. Maybe it's the fancier Socratic irony, where we pretend to be ignorant of something, even though we're not. This verbal irony is most common when the words that we say don't match what we mean. Think of the Old Testament's Job, when he says, No doubt, but ye are the people, and wisdom shall die with you. Sure it will. We see verbal irony, too, in a fairy tale like the emperor's new clothes. We see it as overstatement, where, as the tailors design the emperor's outfits, they praise it. Superb clothing, daring design, such luscious fabric. Oh, the colors are splendid. When they do this and they persuade the emperor through this overstatement, he can't help but accept it, foolish as he is. Notice that those same lines could become sarcasm as verbal irony if I said them this way. Oh, superb clothing. Yeah, daring design. In both cases, neither of these are praise. In the story of an hour, we actually have a set of characters who never seem to use verbal irony. Every character speaks sincerely when they speak about what they desire and what they believe. Suppose, though, that Josephine was at the door calling through the lock, you know, Louise, you're going to make yourself ill. And Louise called back and she said, I'm grieving over a great loss. That could be verbal irony. On the one hand, she is, and Josephine reads it as grieving over a great loss, when in fact Louise means something quite different. She's grieving over the great loss of years of a bad marriage. But in this story, there does not seem to be too much in verbal irony. Situational irony 
works a little differently. And this is one that most of us are familiar with as well. It's when events don't occur in the way we would expect. Of all the places to burn down a fire station? Oh, look, the politician who passed the capital punishment law is the first one to be executed. How ironic is that? Now, these situationally ironic events are not just a sad event. Rain on your wedding day. That's just sad. But it's not particularly ironic. It's when we have an expectation for the world to work in a particular way, and it does not. Imagine the situational irony in the emperor's new clothes. There is a kind of poetic irony in that this foolish spendthrift of an emperor is publicly humiliated before the very people who he taxes. That's a kind of poetic justice, a sort of karma, and that is a situational irony. Also, though, the entire story is built upon knowledge as dictated rather than experienced. The tailors dictate to the emperor that the clothes are real and good. The emperor dictates to the subjects that the clothes are real and good. Only the child is free from the politics that built the irony. There is a situational irony in Story of an Hour as well. When Brentley supposedly dies, the case for mourning a tragedy ironically becomes one of celebration. Now notice, too, the situational irony that the cause for celebration is further ruined by the unlikely and timely arrival of the one who caused it. Isn't it ironic that the very moment Louise discovers the possibility of freedom, it is snatched from her? But neither of these kinds of irony, verbal or situational, as much as they may appear in literature, are as important as dramatic irony. I had a professor at Eastern Michigan University by the name of Walter Brolowski, and he defined irony this way. Irony is a mode of perception in which at least two views of the same thing exist, one limited, the other or others less limited. What did he mean by that? He means that when characters are deprived of knowledge, ironic situations occur. Dramatic irony is when someone, we'll call him the ironic perceiver, does not know as much as someone else. Now, this may be between characters. One character knows more than another. It could be between characters and the narrator, uh, between narrator and the author, or between any of these and the reader. Dramatic irony works when meaning is partially concealed. In the great story of Oedipus, for instance, Oedipus is an ironic perceiver, the hero who does not understand the truth and who slowly has that truth unveiled to him. The irony even becomes tragic when this limited perceiver ironically speaks lines that have other meanings he did not realize. Oedipus says, I will seek out this murderer, wherever he be. Ha, dude, it's you. In the emperor's new clothes, we also have dramatic irony. The emperor does not see what the smallest child can. His ego and reality depend upon how well he can force others to agree with him. That's definitely a limited perception of the world. Josephine and Richards, in Story of an Hour, believe Louise is mourning the loss of her husband. That also is a limited perception. 
The doctors, who think she died from joy at seeing her husband alive, they are also ironic perceivers. They believe it was a situational irony that killed her. Oh, the joy of her husband. He arrives to a, what should have been a loving reunion, and it turns out that it was too much for her heart. Ah, oh, the irony of it all. But the dramatic irony is that those doctors did not understand. And there's a nice difference between situational and dramatic irony that we as readers can see. Part of dramatic irony is also then the realization of that limitation, what James Joyce called epiphany, the moment of awareness. Think of it as the aha moment. When our hero's limited perception is partially or completely uncovered and she recognizes a truth, sometimes that protagonist never sees that truth and the epiphany belongs to the reader. Sometimes the protagonist finds the truth and it's a terrible thing, as it was in Oedipus, and so it becomes tragic. Sometimes they awaken to the truth and all is well, and in the classical tradition we call that comedy or at least a happy ending. In The Emperor's New Clothes, his epiphany, being called out in public, is, is tragic and comic. It's tragedy for him, though it could have been worse, but comic for readers as a kind of poetic justice against those in power. We laugh at him because he's naked in public. Note the levels of irony, then, that happen in this story. At the most limited is the foolish emperor. But at a second level also limited, are the two agreeable public. They see him naked, but they are ready to praise him anyway. At the least limited or most aware character, we have the child, and, of course, we readers who see the whole story. How does this work in the story of an hour? We've talked about Josephine and Richards and the doctors, and at that level, yes, there is definitely an irony, and everyone talks about that irony. More, though, what if Louise is also an ironic perceiver? She has suspended her intelligent thought. She is, quote, feverish and unwitting. She believes she has a happy life ahead of her. Free, she whispers. Brentley's arrival is a confirmation for her that this can't happen. She dies from the realization that freedom is an illusion. If Louise is also an ironic perceiver, then let's imagine the levels of irony. At the most limited are the foolish friends and doctors who do not understand her circumstances. Then there's Louise, who understands her circumstance, but believes the dream of freedom is possible. Then, perhaps outside of that, is the narrator, who sees that she's feverish, suspending her intelligent thought, and, of course, we readers, who see the whole story. Remember, too, that narrators are not always less limited perceivers. They are in Emperor's New Clothes and in The Story of an Hour. But we're going to see some stories where the narrators are themselves quite ironic in their perception. With this in mind, now go listen to Episode 1, Kate Chopin's The Story of an Hour. 